If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you're new to church or new to the Bible uh, or kind of not unfamiliar, the Bible is like most books. It has a table of contents in the front, so you just kind of look where that is and see where it says 1 Samuel, and that's 1 Samuel. That's where we're going to be in chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you don't have a Bible at all, we'd love to outfit you with one. And if so, if you just go to our bookstore, which is in the center of our campus, it looks like a spaceship there, uh, you walk in there and they'll make sure that they get one to you. We're also going to have the text up on the screen so that you can follow along with us um, here today. Tim mentioned 710, and I love this community. It's a community of college students, young adults, uh, singles, um, working. And, and so I just, I love this community. It's what I've had the privilege to do for almost seven years now. And uh, I taught a series on the life of David. And so when this came up, um, I asked him if I could just kind of teach a, a message out of that. And he was cool with that. And so um, I, I just want to share a little bit of that this morning. But I was really intrigued and enamored by this man, David, because he's a man who lives out in the presence of God as someone who's after God's own heart. God is, it's a unique thing that God said about him. David was a, was a really cool guy. He was a military genius. David had political savvy. He had musical talent and ability. He had great hand-eye coordination. He was good-looking. David was a guy that had it all. But the real measure of David's magnitude was his obsession with God. He, he was a man that was preoccupied with the love of God, but yet we also see in David's life, and I would really encourage you to read your Bible. If you've never read David's story, I'd, can, I'd really encourage you to read through um, 1 Samuel and then also in the Psalms and really get David's story because he, was, he had a life at places where he was consumed by pride, misplaced ambition, lust, capable of any sin and culpable of many, and he frequently gave in to sudden urges of passion and even deliberate and determined evil. But that was David. David was eaten up by lust, but consumed by the love of God. And, and in a lot of ways, unfortunately, his dual obsession makes him pretty familiar to me. And, and David was kind of my kind of guy. He was kind of a little bit, you know, you never knew really exactly what he was going to do. Um, but more importantly, and most importantly, especially in our study and our look at David's life, is that he was God's kind of man as well. First Samuel chapter 13 says, the Lord sought out a man after his own heart. If you want to understand David's story, I would encourage you to look back a few chapters in First Samuel and get to know a man named Saul. Saul's story and David's story are very different, but the contrast helps you to understand David's story a little better. You see, Saul was the people's choice for king. The nation of Israel complained that everyone else had a king and they didn't. And God says, well, I'm your king. And, and they said, well, that's not really good enough. And so they chose Saul, and they chose him primarily on his looks, mostly his being tall, a lot like we choose people today. Uh, but the issue with Saul was not so much that he was fundamentally a, a horrible person, although he does make some pretty horrible decisions in his tenure, but it's that he was never God's choice. He was the people's choice, the people's idea for king, not God. And so the scene that we find in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is that Samuel, the, the prophet or mouthpiece of God, and, and, and this man has tremendous authority with the people at this time. He's well regarded for his discernment, his ability to hear from God. He has to go. God has given him and said, I want you to go and anoint the next king. Before we get into the story, let's take time out and just uh, pray and ask God to teach us this morning. Ask God to speak to us and be with us here in this moment. Father God, I thank you for what we've already declared about you that's so true. God, you, you, are, you are so good, and God, I just thank you for the chorus that we sang about the curse of sin being broken, 
And God, I thank you for the cross this morning. God, I'm, I'm humbled by it. I'm crushed under the weight of it. But yet, God, I'm, it just brings so much freedom to me in this moment. God, um, we are here to hear from you. And so I pray that you would just remove distractions. God, I pray that I, first and foremost, would not be a distraction. God, I pray that you would remove the distractions that we brought in here that are in our hearts and our minds. God, any other external distraction. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would control me and guide me and interrupt me. God, I pray for the gift of preaching in this moment. God, I pray that our hearts would be soft. God, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. This is all for the glory of Jesus, and it's in his name I pray. Amen. First Samuel, first Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Samuel and Saul were pretty tight. And so Saul was, or Samuel was upset when, when he found out that Saul was not, no longer going to be king. And he said, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Note the language that God is using there. He says, I've provided for myself a king. And that's the big difference here, that Saul's a people's choice, David is God's choice. Verse 2. So Samuel's concerned about this, and he says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me, again, notice the possessive language there, you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And so Samuel doesn't want to commit treason. Again, he's very sensitive to his relationship with Saul. And he's going to anoint the next king, but he doesn't know exactly who it's going to be or what he's going to encounter. Verse 4. And so Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated or set apart Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so when they came, he looked on Eliab, one of Jesse's sons, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Eliab looks the part of the king. In fact, he looks a lot like Saul. He's very tall, very kingly. And we, we see that sometimes in, in politics. We look at someone that they just look like a politician. Maybe that's not a good thing. But in, in, this, in this thing, he looks him and he chooses him the very same way that people chose Saul. Look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. This is the, the key part of this verse. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God says, don't look on the outside. But God has to say that to us because that is how we choose people, right? Either by their physical appearance or by what the things that we see on the outside, and a lot of us, that's how we go through life. We're always trying to put our best foot forward, always trying to kind of present the best self that we can to others. And God says, don't look on the outside. I see the heart. This verse gives us great insight into the heart of God. And we'd see what's important, what's truly important to God. And the thing that sets David apart and will always set David apart is his heart. 
David is not a perfect man. I, again, I encourage you to read through his story. You clearly see that through his, his life. David doesn't always do it the right way or make the right choices or honor God in everything that he does, but yet he is the one man in Scripture that God says of him, he's a man after my own heart. He's not perfect, but he is sincerely committed to the Lord. He has a love for God that is pure and rich and real, and he doesn't always get it right but he has a heart that is inclined towards God. He has a love affair with his God, and God's able to see that. Good verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And so it's, it's kind of hard for us to understand maybe the, the culturally what's happening here and to get our heart, heads around this scenario. But youth in this time was not exactly a, a positive thing when it came to leadership. Uh, the elders were honored for their experience and wisdom. The oldest son was the one who would receive the birthright and the inheritance. But th so this is a big deal. And what God is doing is he's doing what he always does. He's stepping into the established culture of society and he's turning it upside down. Because in the next verse, we're going to see this kid who doesn't look like he should be king, but he's the one who's going to be anointed to be king, and God chooses him. But isn't that the way that God does it? That God goes to the margins, and he goes to the outside, and those who look like they would never be brought near or drawn in, those are the ones that God chooses. Those are the ones that God brings in. On the outward, it looks like Eliab and all these other guys, they would make much better kings. But yet God goes to the unknown, to the unnoticed, to the margin, and brings him close. And thank God he's still doing that today. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him now, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is, is he. Now, God is clearly not choosing David because of his looks. David is good looking. Women do like David. and David likes women, which actually ends up to be a big issue for him later on. And he is beautiful, but that's not why God chooses him. The scripture also says that he's ruddy. And I'm, I'm just going to kind of help this because this was trouble for me when I was in Sunday school because ruddy means having reddish features. Now, David does not look like Conan O'Brien. He is not Irish, but he does have kind of reddish hair and lighter skin and light eyes, but he still has the Middle Eastern features. And the scripture notices that and, and brings that to light, talks about how he looks, because in this part of the world, to look like this was a symbol of youth and Vitality. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now it is important to note in this text and in this story, in this passage, that at no point when Samuel anoints and prays over David, he does not say a word about him being king. And, and from this text, I don't think anyone else aside from Samuel knows that David's going to be the next king. And this is really helpful because in the next chapter, and again, you got to read your Bible. In the next chapter, the Israelites are fighting the Philistines, and the Philistines put forward their champion, Goliath, who is a giant. 
and David shows up to deliver some food, and his brothers just punk him the whole time like he's some pizza delivery boy. And if they knew he was going to be king, they probably wouldn't treat him that way. But at this, at this point, no one really knows. I mean, he knows that he's anointed and chosen in a particular way, but I don't think they know what it means exactly. And I don't think David knows exactly what this means. I don't think that David is self-aware at this point that he's on a path to kingship. The anointing is about the spirit of the Lord descending on David, and it's going to rest mightily on him. Skip down to verse 17. Saul's in need of some music therapy, so he says to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who's with the sheep. See, so David is anointed. He's like, okay, that was interesting. I got to get back to work. I got sheep to take care of. Verse 20, and Jesse took a donkey and donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. I think we need to understand about this journey that David is on, that David is not auditioning to be king. He was not planning or strategizing to be king. He he is a shepherd that is almost completely unaware of anyone that is saying anything about him in any particular category. When he's out in the field and he's writing these amazing worship songs and he's playing his instruments, he's not playing for other people. He's not trying to get discovered. He's not trying to make a name for himself or get signed. He's not recognized or praised for his giftedness or ability. He doesn't know that he's writing these songs that are going to be in a book called Psalms that are going to be sung and taught on thousands of years after he's dead. David is not thinking about anything else other than sheep and God. No one else knows about his gifts. He's not going to be a YouTube sensation. He's not going to be on any kind of idol show. He's just trying to worship God and keep himself from being eaten by a lion and a bear. That's it. That's David's life. He's not up for a promotion. He's simply trying to be faithful and honor God in the place that God has put him. He says, God gave me these songs. And so I'm going to sing them to him. God, God gave me this instrument, so I'm going to play it for him. God gave me these sheep, so I'm going to take care of them for him. And this is so important to us because we live in a world where we are constantly thinking about being upward mobile. There's always this assumption that we need to be promoting ourselves or our gifts or getting noticed or getting discovered to find a way somehow to kind of stand out in the crowd. I think our number one private pastime is trying to get noticed. Exhibit A, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And I'm not against those things. I have those things. I think they're good and they have, they have their place, right? I mean, you got to be able to share the meal that you're eating with someone somehow. <laughs> and while David does eventually become king, note the fact that he's not trying to climb the ladder. He's not striving for political advancement. And the fascinating thing and really the sad thing for me, and maybe this doesn't connect because you're not in the church world, but in the church world, we judge success the very same way. How do you know when something is successful? Well, when there's more. Well, more of what? More anything. More people, more money, more power, more brains, more strong, more beauty, more influence. If you have more, then you are blessed. If people notice you, then if you're influential, then God's blessing is on you. And if those things aren't happening, then that must mean that somehow God's hand of favor is not on you. This, and the reason that I wanted to to take this particular lesson out of the life of David, because this has been 
the most difficult, but also the most important thing for me um, that I've learned as a, as a young pastor here. I came from a place in Tallahassee, Florida, where I started a college ministry with three of the dorkiest guys I've ever met. Um, one of them's a really, really good friend of mine, so I, maybe I was the dork. But, um, and I would just have these guys over for dinner and eat spaghetti and talk about Jesus. And I lived, it was nothing flashy, I lived in this really old house, and I lived in an attic that had been converted into a studio apartment. And they just would come over and we would talk about Jesus. And this ministry at its zenith, at its peak, and when it was like really going off, had maybe 50 people that were associated with it. We did all kinds of goofy stuff. We went whitewater rafting, went to theme parks, had game nights, stupid stuff like that. And then I had the opportunity almost seven years ago to come out here to 710. And 710 at the time had like 350-something people. We were meeting in the chapel, killer band, lights, action. Tim was a part of it. Tyler Johnson was a part of it. Um, Ricardo Stewart, Danielle, Matthew Browson, all these people were out here. And I got to be a part of this, and I thought I was on the absolute mountaintop. I was so stoked. Lauren and I were just we're flipping out that we got to be a part of this. And then six months later, Tyler transitioned into a role where he was doing some community and global stuff. And so now I'm the guy. and I get to lead this amazing ministry. I mean, it's like pinch me. I can't believe I get to be a part of this. But then our Tuesday night gatherings start to get a little bit smaller. And uh, Ricardo, who was helping out, he leaves to go do some student ministry stuff. Danielle left to go do some stuff with Tyler. Uh, Matthew Brazelton left to go lead worship over at, at Gateway. And the, and the ministry that I started leading starts to shrink even more. And so suddenly this bright shining star of a ministry starts to fade and it just so happens to be happening around the same time that I take it over. And so I start to question everything. I start to question my calling, the wisdom of leadership, my giftedness or ability, the validity of college ministry, the effectiveness of college ministry. Why does it even matter? Why should we be doing it? But all of what, here's what's happening. My ideal or my idol of success in ministry was being crushed. In fact, Jerry Smith, who's one of my favorite people, a good friend of mine, elder here, he gave me a book about being liberated from ministry success, which is perfect timing. He's like, here's a book on what to do after you've ruined a ministry. <laughs> so at this point in my life, I'm thinking, I'm headed towards being a nobody, stuck in nowhere land. And the next four years for me were very difficult but extremely necessary. I mean, when Tim says he's my friend, he really is my friend because he at any moment could have pulled the plug on me and my drama, but he walked step by step with me and loved me through the whole thing, told me exactly what I need to hear, the hard things that I need to hear. There's an even more turnover in leadership, transition in the church and in 710 and all the while I'm trying to figure out how to be a pastor, how to be a husband, how to be a dad. This world is like swirling. But God had some serious work to do on my heart. And God was teaching me about the blessing and the reward of obscurity. The blessing and the reward of being unknown. You see, when I was at that little Baptist church driving that 15-passenger van all over the southeast, and when 710 began to shrink, I wrongly assumed that obscurity was a curse. I thought I must have done something wrong or I must be the wrong guy for this. And it gets really gnarly in those moments and you've had them too because you start to look at other people and you think I'm more talented than them, I'm smarter than them, I could do it better than them, but yet they seem to be flourishing and I'm stuck. You ever feel stuck? 
You ever feel like you're just not going anywhere? You're just spinning your wheels? You ever feel like you should be getting noticed and appreciated for all the work that you're doing, but it just seems like you are on nobody's radar? Every mom in the place is like, preach. Let me just tell you from personal experience, that line of thinking is an absolute prison. It, it is a vicious cycle that never lets you win. Our fear of not mattering much has the potential to pull us away from what matters most. Say that again. Our fear of not mattering much has the potential to pull us away from what matters most. Comparison is a trap. It's a toxic practice. Here's the thing. No matter what you do in life, there will always be someone that does what you do better than you. Always. But we love to think how we're doing in life as compared to other people. And we love to measure our successes against theirs. And, and unfortunately, Christians are notorious for this. Right? We love to gossip and then try to redeem it as a prayer request. I'm only telling you. So you pray for them, right? right? But we love to kind of get that out there. So we think we're not, well, at least I'm not as bad as them, or at least I haven't done that. Or maybe, yeah, maybe I've messed up, but it hasn't been to that degree. The problem is there comes along with all of this, this kind of depression, and kind of woe is me feeling, and you start to just be this black hole. Some of you, you're in jobs right now where it blows your mind that people are getting promoted above you. You have a manager or a supervisor that has no business in their role, and if their supervisor knew what you know, they probably wouldn't have a job at all. Some of you in your family and, and friends, that, that, that circle, you're constantly fighting for attention or fighting to get noticed. All of these things, they kind of fall in line with thinking that obscurity is a curse. Obscurity is not a curse. It's not a symptom that you are doing something wrong. The fact that you don't feel adequately appreciated or acknowledged or promoted doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. And you might be like David here in our story where he has tremendous talent and ability and you haven't been discovered. It doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. Our culture is not evolving into one that appreciates the things that really matter, like wisdom and character. Do you really think that the best things are the most popular things? The Kardashians, Kesha, the Jersey Shore, Honey Boo Boo, soccer. No, I just don't know why I threw soccer in there. Why are the Kardashians famous? For being famous. Why? We don't know. But yet we are envious of people like that, and we're envious of their situation. We have, in our culture, we have things that are clearly not good, but are incredibly popular. We live in a world that chose Jesus, that, cho that chose Saul, but rejected Jesus. What does that tell you about our corporate common wisdom? We live in a world that over and over and over again would choose King Saul. He's handsome, he's tall, he's got great hair. You guys think I'm just jealous of people with great hair. <laughs> but Jesus Christ, the king of love, he steps into his creation and he's despised and rejected by man. One of the reasons I think God anointed David as king is because David was not caught up in the fame and recognition game. He wasn't concerned about his music getting hot or who he was going to network with. Or, he was just content to live in a field where no one was paying him any attention and live with a pure heart before God. And that's all David was thinking about. David is just what, trying to do the best job with what God has given him to do. And listen, this is not a message where I'm bagging on ambition and goals and vision and, and leadership and achievement and success. Those things are good. 
Those things are good things. But I think that we would do well to approach our lives with the same perspective that David has here. As long as you think that obscurity or not being known is a curse from God, that he doesn't love you, you will miss what God wants to build in you in those times of obscurity. From the time that I was 13 and, and all through college, and even a little bit after college, um, I worked for my dad's company. My dad uh, did, had a construction company. He did structural resurface and repair, which essentially means that we did concrete work and fixed broken foundations. And so we would go all over, and if there was a floor that wasn't level or a floor that was cracked and needed to be repaired, that's what we do. We'd go to these different places and fix these foundations. It was tedious work. It was uh, really difficult work, hard work. And it was no one ever noticed, no one ever saw, because they're just eventually going to build something on top of what you did. One of my dad's favorite pastimes is to go around the city, around the town where we live, and kind of point to all these different projects. Be like, I fixed that floor there. I fixed that there. there. And it's really annoying, because I was like, who cares? No one can even see it. but it's absolutely essential to the building. You see, without a strong foundation, the rest of the building wouldn't be strong. And some of you, you wanna be a really hip, trendy, cool, well-liked, respected, popular building, but you're not willing to put the work in on the foundation. Or you're fighting the foundation work that God is trying to do in your life right now because you're not seeing the immediate results. You're like, I'm being obedient to the word of God. I'm trying to chase hard after him. I'm trying to obey him. But it seems like everybody around me is flourishing. So I'm just going to give up. I'm just going to go back to doing it my way. Because building character takes time, but being popular doesn't. Building character, uh, becoming a man or woman after God's own heart, it goes unnoticed on earth, but being popular only matters here on earth and only for a finite amount of time. Your character and your devotion to God is what makes you useful in the kingdom of God. Not your title, position, successes, achievements. If, if you are living this life to be noticed, You'll never be noticed enough. But if you live to know God, you'll always be amazed at how much you are loved. I think God let me go through those years of my ideals about ministry being deconstructed so that I could have a greater appreciation for ministry, so that I could truly love people and not use people, so that I could have greater joy in my time as a pastor and truthfully my, me being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Because I know now that if anyone at any time is somehow remotely blessed by anything that I say or do or am a part of, I know it's 100% because of the Spirit of God working in and through me. Because when I wake up and I look in the mirror and I look at that guy, I know who he is. And I know what he's done and I know what he's capable of doing. And it's not pretty. And so I'm very thankful that God allowed me to go through a time of obscurity and still allows me thankfully, to go through those times of being unknown. Now, look, this doesn't mean that if you just suck it up in obscurity that one day you're going to be king. You're like, okay, I'll just bear it because one day I'm going to be king. Not everybody gets to be king. The problem with the average person is that they don't think they're average. But you are. Embrace it. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, again, another really incredible chapter if you've, never, if you've never read it. Hebrews chapter 11 is kind of like this hall of fame of followers of, of, of Jesus. And, and it's this, this, this uh, kind of hall of fame of faith. And there's a phrase in that chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about all these people and all these amazing things that they do. And then it says, they went to their graves not receiving what was promised. In other words, they didn't see, they didn't get the big payout 
while they were here. In fact, it says they saw it or greeted it from afar off. You see, the best thing that you get with Jesus is Jesus. The best thing about being a follower of Jesus is that you get Jesus. And if you're okay with that, then you will be blessed. You'll have joy, you'll have peace, you'll have life, you'll have freedom. And what God is calling you to do is God's calling you to be faithful and to love him like crazy where you are now. Not someday, now, today. What does he put in your hand? What has he given you to do? Love him like crazy now. Be faithful with what he's given you to do now. This is what David knew and was gripped with. I will love God with everything I have and I'll be fully devoted to him. You see, when you get into David's story, and I re- again, I just really encourage you to get into David's story, there's moments where I bet he thought, man, I just really wish I was in the field with my guitar and the sheep. Because those were the good old days. Those were the glory days when it was just me and God, guitar, and the sheep. And I was just singing my heart out to him. When I was on vacation a couple weeks ago, we were in this really incredible spot, and every night we were able to see the sky absolutely jam-packed, filled with, with stars. And so I would spend out there uh, the nights with my wife, and we'd, I would try to pretend like I knew where all the constellations were, you know, and, and try to impress her. It's all made up. There's, I don't know. Who knows? Who can figure that out? And if you think you know where they all are, it's, it's annoying, so just stop. But I... <laughs> I actually did get an app, and so I kind of put it, but the app could be made up too, who knows. But, and we would just sit there, and it was just amazing, like getting lost in the shooting stars and the, just the, the sky packed, lit up. Not once did I ever think to myself, man, I am a really big deal. No way, no way, quite the opposite. I was just shrunk, I was so small. And it was great. It was great. There's one author, he talks about the thrill of being made small. I think David got this. David in Psalm 42, he writes this lyric and he talks about deep calling to deep. And I just imagine David sitting underneath the stars and he's staring into the depth of the universe and he's like, at the deepest part of the universe is calling to the deepest part of me. And God is calling me, chasing me, wooing me, loving me. In Psalm 27, David writes that God calls him to seek his face. And David says, that's what I seek. That's what I want. I want your face. I want to dwell with you all the days of my life. I want to gaze upon your beauty, Lord. My passion, my heart is singular. It's for you, God. That's what I want. God spoke to the depth of David's heart, uttering his heart's desire, and it's the same with us. And it's the, it could be the same for you today. It could be that God is calling to you, that he is seeking you to seek him. And there's a part of you, your heart resonates with that. That understanding had radical impact in David's life, and, and it should have radical impact in our life because following God, it's, it's not duty or discipline or regimen like, hey, you need to do 50 push-ups and 50 sit-ups every day. It is an answer, a response to the one who has been calling you, wooing you to come to him. David was overwhelmed at the massiveness of God's love for him and the smallness of his own life. And he embraced it with everything that he had. 
David was okay with being unknown because the reality of being known by the true living God captivated him, enveloped him, and he loved it. I love the story of David. I really do. Because it ultimately pushes us forward to the story of a greater David. There was a king who would put on obscurity for the sake of those who had rebelled and sinned against him. He would persevere in the wilderness, fully devoted to his father, to be rejected by a man bearing on his shoulders the wrath that was due us. And he reigns on high as the king of kings. His name is Jesus. And his plan for you is perfect. His timing is perfect. His attention towards you is not lacking. His love for you is super abundant. And his grace will sustain you in your time of obscurity. And the question this morning is the question every morning, every day. Will you trust him? Will you trust him in this? Will your life look like David where you will be captivated by God's love for you and will it be an overflow of his adoration for you let me pray as we prepare for a time of communion this morning Father God God I thank you for David's story God I thank you that you left stories in the scripture of men like David who um, they do they love you like crazy but yet they also commit these heinous sins and crimes against you and against people. And God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for Jesus who paid the penalty for our rebellion against you. And God, I thank you for the reminder that we have this morning in scripture that God, you are always aware of us, that you're always close to us. God, you're here this morning, and God, you're drawing us this morning. It's not a one-time thing. God, you are constantly pursuing us. And God, I just thank you for your love and your care and your compassion. God, I pray for the person who feels like they're stuck this morning. God, I pray that they would know that there's freedom in you. God, they feel unnoticed here on earth. God, would they know that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, knows them, is intimately acquainted with them. And God, would we not be so wrapped up in God trying to make a name for ourselves? But God, would we, would we rejoice that our names are written in the book of life and that the name above all names knows us, loves us, provides for us. God, your grace is amazing. I thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray.